Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the SaaS Marketing Show. This one is a fascinating episode today. So we're talking with Brian Clayton, who is the CEO and co-founder at a company called GreenPal. And we, ter- we talk sorry, about how GreenPal turned lawn care, yes, lawn care, into a multi-million dollar SaaS platform. So some people have called them the Uber for lawn care. Uh, they have over 200,000 active users completing thousands of transactions every single day. And more interestingly, in 2020, they did over $20 million in revenue, connecting lawn care professionals with homeowners. Can you believe that? And so we talked about how often the unsexy markets or the unsexy ideas can become the most successful businesses. And uh, we went really deep into talking about crafting your value proposition and your positioning and how people often get that wrong. And Brian even shared his story about how one of the biggest failures they made at the beginning was not understanding their value proposition themselves. So I think you'll love this one. You're going to learn a lot about how you can avoid wasting years of poorly converting marketing campaigns, advertising the wrong value position to your audience. You will enjoy this episode a lot. I I know you will. It's been one of the most interesting ones I've recorded for a long time. We love interviewing like marketing technology businesses, of course, but uh, it's so fascinating to see how some of these more traditional industries are being shaken up by the SaaS model. So before we press play, before we hit go on this episode with Brian, let's say a big thank you to our sponsors. uh, And that is Restream. Restream is a fantastic platform that you can utilize to help you um, take your webinars, your content pieces, your Zoom calls, your interviews to the next level by broadcasting live, engaging video directly from your browser to over 30 different social networks at the same time. I do believe there is a huge opportunity in live content for SaaS businesses. And uh, that's why we have such a great relationship with the team at Restream and they've supported this podcast pretty much since day one. So if you're thinking about trying some live streaming, either for your SaaS company or for yourself on your own LinkedIn profile, like I like to do now and again, uh, go to restree.am forward slash Dylan. Once again, that's restree.am forward slash Dylan. And if you sign up using that link, you will automatically have a $10 credit added into your account. So um, if you upgrade from their free plan, you'll have $10 off the next plan that you so choose. Excited for you to listen to this one today. Extremely thankful for the team at Restream and also extremely thankful for you. Yes, you listening to this show today. If you enjoy it, I would love it if you just press the rating button. You don't even need to write out a long review if that's going to take too much time. Just give us a rating in, um, in Apple Podcasts and Spotify, wherever you are right now. And if you want to be extra kind, go ahead and share this episode or another episode of the SaaS Marketing Show with any of your friends in the SaaS marketing world. Once again, this is Brian Clayton, the CEO and co-founder at GreenPow. You are going to love this episode. Brian, I'm really excited to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dylan. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. No problem. So today we're going to be talking specifically about how you and the team at GreenPal turned lawn care into this multi-million dollar SaaS platform. Now, as I said to you just before we hit record, I think a lot of people may be listening to this expecting to hear from our more typical like MarTech business. And when they hear lawn care and maybe when they hear 
uber for lawn care like uber for something gets thrown around a lot it's like the new badge of honor for a lot of startups when they're called that they might be thinking okay that sounds great sounds really interesting but how large can that how large can that business be like how long can they have been around what are they like and i think what you're going to share with people might surprise a lot of people uh, that are listening to this and so i want them to take you extremely seriously and i know they're going to learn a ton from this interview so let's start by setting the scene like sharing whatever it is that you're comfortable with sharing as to where you guys are at the moment because yeah i think it's going to be a really great place to begin awesome yeah so i think there might be some sort of correlation between the least uh sexy your idea the better your chances of success so if you can tackle those things that nobody else is looking at a lot of times you'll have a better opportunity a better chance of success and certainly that's one of the things for us we don't have a whole lot of competition doing what we're doing so we can go slow and low and take a sustainable approach. Uh, today, GreenPal has over 200,000 homeowners that use the platform. We've doubled this year with COVID in terms of contactless ordering. We're going to do over $20 million in revenue this year, but it didn't start that way. We've been at this seven years. We're the definition of a seven-year overnight success. We've been grinding my two co-founders and I on this thing for a long time, bootstrapped, self-funded, no outside capital, no debt. We're profitable. And it's been a very much an exercise of faith at times. But for me, like I was solving my own problem. I, my business before GreenPal was a lawn mowing company. So I've been in entrepreneurship for 20 years. I've never had a job, never had a boss. I actually started cutting grass in high school as a way to make extra cash. My dad forced me to go mow the neighbor's yard because he was tired of me hitting, hitting him for, for, for money to buy a pair of soccer cleats that I wanted. So luckily he did that. I started mowing yards and I, I got up like to 10 customers that first summer. And I just kept growing that lawn mowing business over time. Grew it into one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee, where I live. Got it over $10 million in revenue. And in 2013, that business was acquired by one of the largest landscaping companies in the United States. So seeing that business uh, from just myself and a push mower to 150 employees, no revenue, $10 million in revenue over 15 years, I saw the inefficiencies in the lawn mowing industry and knew that technology needed to solve a lot of these problems. I saw what Air, you know, Airbnb was doing for accommodations and Uber and Lyft were doing for ride sharing and all these other examples of, okay, technology can make real world commerce and real world local interactions, make them happen more seamlessly and fluid. And I thought, okay, that, you know, GreenPal needs to exist. This platform needs to exist. Recruited two co-founders. And luckily I was naive and I didn't know what I didn't know. And that naivete is what got me in the game. Cause if I had known how hard it was going to be, I never would have done it. <laughs> uh, but, but luckily I didn't know. And so I just kept at it. And, uh, and the only thing that's kept us going at times was that this was our best idea. This was the only idea I had and I was going to work on my best idea. So this was it. And the first three years were just really hard because we had to teach ourselves how to build technology, teach ourselves how to write code, how to design software, how to distribute software, all these things. I had to reboot myself from a traditional blue collar entrepreneur to a tech entrepreneur. And uh, just stuck with it. And so here we are now, seven years later, we're, we're doing good. We've manufactured this momentum and, uh, and we're in charge of our own destiny too. We don't have any sort of stakeholders that, that can control how we grow this thing. So it's a good place to be. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I want to ask a quick question off the back of that because I know there'll be people listening, like early stage SaaS founders. That's why they're here trying to learn more from people like you. One thing you touched on is coming from that, the background where you're you're scratching your own itch with this product almost, right? But you said yourself, not having any technical, any real technical expertise, not having built out a SaaS platform yourself before. You touched on like recruiting a couple of co-founders. When you were going through that process, was the focus for you bringing on 
technical people to, to support you? Or like, how did you begin that kind of build process almost like finding those people? Because that's a question that I think comes up a lot. Because like me personally, we, I, I run a marketing agency and we run paid advertising campaigns for SaaS businesses. That's all we do, the only kind of companies that we work with. But I know deep down, having worked within a couple of SaaS businesses before setting up this agency, like in the future, one thing that I'll be really great at doing is building a SaaS business because we market for so many SaaS companies. Like I know how to do the marketing, but have no absolutely zero technical background. So this is a conversation I have ongoing with myself in my head a lot of the time. So it's like a, a greedy question for me to ask you this, but I'm sure there'll be other people in the same spot too. So how did you go about doing that? Great question. Getting a co-founder is not something that should be taken lightly. It needs to be thought about who you're going to marry. Like it needs, it literally needs to have that level of thought because if you're successful, your business is going to last, your co-founder relationship is going to last longer than most marriages do. And, and the reality is it's easier to get a divorce than it is to unwind a lot of these business partnerships. So you need to think about it like that. Who you, and in the first five years, you're going to be spending more time with this person than you are your real spouse. So that's the level of like gravity of the decision. And also it will determine your success or failure uh, in life, in terms of a marriage or in your business partner. So don't take it as, as something that you can easily unwind because you can't. So that, that aside... Ideally, you go to the dynamic of the decision. With, like Paul Graham says, you get a hacker and a hustler. You get somebody who's really good at the tech side. You get somebody who's really good at just driving things forward and sales and project management and product management and just getting shit done. Like you need somebody who's driven like that. And then you need somebody who can just execute on the technology that this person is bringing to the table. It's hard to find two people like that can get in the same room that trust each other. And so for me, I didn't know any coders. I, I'd never built a website. I didn't know. I just wasn't running in those circles. I didn't know any nerds, didn't know any geeks. And I was in like the, a traditional like blue collar type of business for 15 years. I don't know any people that can write Ruby on Rails code. Like I don't know where these people even exist. So it wasn't like I could just easily do that. What I did, I optimized for. I just, I got in the trenches with two people I could trust who I knew had ambition. Because one thing I did learn building my first company, I had a sales team there and I had five salespeople that worked for me. I learned a key lesson in, in business and in life is that you can't motivate unmotivated people. And so you have to like optimize for somebody that's bringing that motivation and that ambition to the table. And then that will solve a lot of other things. And so it's, it doesn't matter whether you're hiring a salesperson, an engineer, a, a product manager, like if they don't have that motivation and ambition, especially in the early days, it doesn't matter what their other like hard skills are because they're, they're, they're going to be a shitty co-founder. And for me, I, I just, I, I knew two people that I, I trusted. I've known them for 10, 15 years and I knew that they were ambitious and wanted to make something of themselves in life. And so luckily like the, those fundamentals is, is what's carried us through in terms of learning how to write code, learning how to design software, learning how to distribute software. It took us three years to do this stuff, but at least we were, all three sufficiently motivated, sufficiently on the same page to just grind it through. Because, yeah, you can't teach yourself to be a world-class engineer in, in a year or three years. That's a decade. But you can teach yourself to be good enough to get a beta out the door and get to a point where you can then delegate from a position of stewardship. And so that's what we did. And so not only were, did we not have any money and we were building a marketplace, which is really hard, and we still and we didn't even know how to code. So we had all these things working against us, but at least we were all like motivated to just see it through. And we all just really wanted to make something of ourselves. And like the business was the vehicle for that. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That makes sense. I don't know if you saw, I was like taking a couple of quick notes as you were saying that. But I, I love the thing that you said around uh, you can't motivate unmotivated people. Like we're going through a period of growth right now. So I'm doing some hiring and lots of other things. And it's like something that's becoming clearer and clearer to me by the day. As a leader, you can't try and you, you can support someone and guide them, but you can try and force them to become something they're not, right? It's a lesson that no. I'm going through right now too. Um, that, okay. that might save you five years. I've made that mistake. I've been in business for 20 years and trying to fix somebody who just didn't have the ambition. I, I wasted too much time with them. So and once you identify that, because they'll fool you, they'll fool you in the hiring process, they'll fool you in the co-founder relationship process. Once you determine that they are not what you thought they were, cut it, hire fast and, and fire faster. I appreciate that. Okay, thank you. So let's get to the marketing. This is so fascinating for me, right? Because as I said to you before this, very rarely, like we maybe have one in every five or six episodes will be the will be the CEO. So like naturally, me as growing and building my team, like I, I want to go into like CEO type conversations with you, but I also want to focus on the marketing for everyone else that's listening here. It's finding that balance. So one thing I really want to talk about today and something that was shared with me ahead of ahead of this call, which I think fits the mold of a lot of people. We see this a lot with the clients that we work with too, or not work with anymore, but when we were first working with kind of earlier stage SaaS businesses, this was a challenge that I saw come up time and time again, which made us running ads for them really difficult, which is why we no longer work with those early stage businesses. And that is people, people having challenges with understanding exactly what their value prop is or like how they go to market and i totally get that being an early stage you have to figure that out and experiment and you said that was something that in the early days of green power you thought you were selling like the cheapest way to get your grass cut but over time that has significantly changed and that is one of the reasons that's helped you drive the business forward so i'd love you to touch on that a little bit like first of all how you identified or how you not necessarily identified, but made the decision that, okay, what we're doing right now, this clearly isn't the best value prop for us. And then I want to talk about how you then adjust it. Cause I think that'd be really interesting for lots of people listening to this. Cause that then has an impact on everything else that you do from a marketing sales perspective. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't nail that value prop early on, it can be like a, like an inflection point where you just set off on a vector on the wrong way, on the wrong direction. So in the early days, nailing that value prop is, is important to even know like how to position your product, how the copy needs to be positioned, what the ad creative needs to look like, what the actual product is and does. All of the like nailing that value proposition is so critical. And for us, we one of the things that, that I learned early on was when somebody comes to your app, uh, download downloads it in the app store, comes to your landing page, comes to your homepage, whatever, they need to like be able to answer three questions in less than three seconds. Where am I? What can I do here? And why does it matter? And they, they, they need to be able to understand that very quickly. And a lot of that boils down to your copy, what the words on the interface say. And you don't know how to craft that until you get something out the door and you start talking to as many users and customers as you can. And so for us, we launched the first version of GreenPal in, in the summer of 2013. It was a shitty product. It barely worked. None of us knew how to code, so we paid a development shop in Nashville like $150,000 to build the first version of GreenPal. We put this on credit cards and stuff. It was a total failure. That went to zero. We had to start all over again. But at least we, we had something to get into the hands of consumers, and then we relentlessly talked to as many of them as we could. And the way we, we actually got the word out about that first version was we passed out door hangers all over Nashville, Tennessee, where we live, like, 200,000 flyers, my two co-founders and I like hoofed it and passed those out. And 
we got a few hundred people to use it and we reached out to every single one of them and, and got a few dozen people to meet with us just because they were nice people. And uh, we started talking to them like, okay, what did the product do that helped you? What, what did you do? What did it not do that you wished it would do? Where did we let you down? If we delighted you, how? And then also like, how do you normally get this service done? What do you normally do to hire a lawn mowing service? And a lot of times we, people would go through the same spiel. I would call friends and family. I would get on Facebook. I would get on Craigslist. And then out of sheer desperation, I would just get on Google. And so we tapped into a few things there. Like we understood that, okay, as a channel, Google might be one that we want to explore in the early days. And, and that kind of helped us lead down like product channel fit. But the other thing that we understood in those early conversations was that these people, like we thought we were selling the cheapest lawn mowing service available because the dynamics of the platform was you get competitive bids and you can hire the cheapest one. That's what the path that we set off on was to build a product that did that. Because I'm coming to the, I'm coming to the dynamic of the problem from a contractor for 15 years. And so 15 years, I'm getting beat up on price every single day. I'm like, all people give a damn about is they want the cheapest way to get this done. And, and that's price is important in this business, but I thought that's all that mattered. And then after meeting and looking people in the eyes at a Starbucks in, in Antioch, Tennessee, I, I, I come to realize, no, these people actually used our platform because they were desperate and they just needed the damn grass cut and they needed somebody to do it today and they needed somebody to actually show up. And I kept, we kept hearing that over and over again. It's like, look, man, like my last guy flaked on me. I left five voicemails. Nobody would call me back. I finally hired somebody up, somebody off of Craigslist. They didn't show up. And now I'm getting a fine from the city because my grass is three feet tall. I just signed up for your shitty product because I thought it might work. And so that reliability, dependability, and speed and ease of use is what we were selling. And the price just needed to be in market. It didn't need to be a $40 lawn mowing for $27. It needed to be a $40 lawn mowing that showed up today and, and was reliable. And so that shifted everything. That shifted how we built the product. It shifted how we marketed it. It shifted how we positioned it. And then it also shifted like ad copy and, and, and A-B testing that we were doing. You talk about like early days, early day SaaS companies just wanting to pour the gas on a channel and not before they even figure out what their value proposition is. And that's like pouring gas on wet leaves. It's, yeah, you can spend money on paid acquisition, but it needs to be like a part of a, a thesis of a grand experiment and, and understand that you might spend 10 grand or five grand or a thousand dollars and not get you know any sort of return out of it, but at least you're gonna get learnings. And, and while you don't have the traffic to your property to do A-B testing, you can test in the channel. And so we were testing in the channel, Facebook ads and, and Google AdWords and on email, the differences between our value propositions in terms of get the cheapest lawn mowing service in East Nashville or get your lawn mowed today guaranteed in East Nashville and understanding the, the differences in conversion on, on how we position the platform. Because at the end of the day, like we live and die by, by demand acquisition. If we can't acquire users into our platform to tee up to our service providers, then we don't have a product. And so that's we, we had to be like had to learn how to be one of the preeminent marketers of lawn mowing services on the planet. That's so fascinating. Thank you so much for, for sharing this so far too, because like, especially for, for me, the point that hits home for me coming from the paid side of things and paid background is like what you said around, hey, it still can be valuable to test paid acquisition to help speed up the process of figuring out what that value prop is. But like one of the challenges we used to face when we worked with early stage SaaS companies is like, 
if someone came to us when I was early at building this business and they were like, hey, we, we've got an ad budget, we want to spend ads, we're early, but we've got the budget there, we want to figure this out, like we would say yes to them. And then as an agency, we would see that those would be the clients that end up churning for us. And it's not necessarily because of 100% us or 100% them. It's just not the best fit if they're not approaching it from the angle of using it to learn and to discover. And because a lot of early stage businesses are going at it from the point of, hey, we want to use paid to, to pour gas on the fire, like you said, but therefore expecting results immediately as well. And so it's really interesting the way you phrase it. I want to find out from you in terms of growth, like channels and like where where you're focusing your time on on marketing the most at the moment and what works for you guys. Like I know you have, I was doing some research before this, like looking at the different popular locations, for example, or have their own like sub pages on the website. Like I see a load of them. So I'm, I'm assuming that like SEO for you guys and like optimizing around keywords in specific locations is probably a probably a big play. What, am I right there? And what else are you doing? You talked about running Facebook ads, Google ads, etc. I would imagine a service like yours, Google is probably like a, a big focus, but also maybe expensive. I'm not too sure because it's like very high intent. There's probably a lot of competition for this kind of stuff. Like where, what does marketing look like for you guys? Like from a, let's say a 50,000 foot view up in the sky. Yeah. To your earlier point about startups and marketing, like I think like in the early days, it's, it's like product, and then marketing is in the product, like growth is in the product. It's not product, sprinkle some marketing on top. Because a lot of times you innovate on product and you have to innovate on growth at the same time. It's almost like it's almost like 50% of whatever the hell it is you're doing is innovating on solving a problem with the product. And the other 50% is innovating on growth. And it almost doesn't matter if you don't get the second piece correct because you just, you're not gonna be able to compete in terms of distribution with all the other buyers of these of this media. And so like that that I think needs to be talked about more in, in startup land. It's, yeah, spend half your time innovating on solving a problem that people want to pay for and the other half on how you're going to distribute it. Now that aside, we you know your show is the SaaS marketing show. I'm building a marketplace. So it's a little different, but it is a SaaS enabled marketplace. And so on both sides of the transaction, there's SaaS tools. And so like on the homeowner side, we go maybe a hundred yards deep, but on the vendor side, we go 10 miles deep in terms of SaaS tools that they get for free. So there's SaaS components and we also charge for some of those tools. So we have the way we market it is similar, but different than your typical SaaS product. Like your typical SaaS product, okay, I'm going to get X number of users. They're going to pay me X number a month and they're going to stick around for X number of time. And I can pay $120 for them and let's just Try to go get customers for $120. On a marketplace, it's a little different to, to arrive to that, that sort of uh, conclusion. That said, for most marketplaces to survive and exist, especially ones that are consumer facing, there has to be some sort of element of organic search to compete and to be around and to win. Because like, we take a transactional piece of the pie, but not so much that we can afford to pay $500 for a customer. And so uh, a lot of times if you're competing in, in, in Google AdWords or Facebook ads for selling lawn mowing or landscaping services, you're competing against everybody trying to sell that kind of service who, who are getting 100% of the margin. And so for, for most marketplaces, it's going to be really tough to like just crank the dial on paid channels. Like you're going to have to fight the long, hard fight of organic search and uh, not all, but most. And for us, we dialed into that very early. We we were able, we spent three years just in Nashville 
trying to figure out how to make the product reliable and how to get uh, liquidity and critical mass in, in just in one market. We knew we had to make it work in Nashville before we did anything else. And then we knew if it would work in Nashville, it would work everywhere else. So it was twofold. And so that focus enabled us to uh, really dial the product in, but also enabled us to compete in organic search because it was just one city. It was local SEO in one city. And we could throw all of our weight into that. And we knew if we could rank for these 20 main uh, search queries that, that we could generate enough traffic to build a little tiny business in Nashville. And then once we figured that out, we then replicated that to every major city in the United States. But the, the, the key learning there is three, two things. If you're going to see a lot of business model canvases for new startups and like distribution, SEM, PPC, done. No, that's not done. Like you have to have some sort of overarching plan on how you're going to compete in SEO and how long it's going to take. And it is a bet the company decision. And so just be darn sure that's the channel you want to bet the company on because it's going to take two or three years to see any kind of like traction in that channel. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that too. I saw like maybe one or two more questions and then we'll start to start wrapping things up. But like I saw that you guys offer snow removal also. Is, has stuff like that, is, is that, I don't know if add-on is the right word, but like complementary services and other offerings that could fit this same model. Is that something that you've experimented with a lot? Is this something new recently you're looking to expand out in more? Because I, I feel, obviously I have no knowledge of the industry like you, but I feel like now that you guys have made this work for lawn mowing services, for example, there must be so many other services that you could look at that kind of tie in with that. For example, where I live, so I'm originally from the UK, as you can tell, but I live in Estonia now, like a country up in the Baltics. And here, a startup that's been, I don't want to say blowing up because it's such a small market here, but a company that's been doing really well here is a very similar structure to what you have, but for car washes on demand. So they have a van and they come to you wherever you are and they have a steam machine in their van and they they like clean out your car, they do everything. They ballet the car, the whole thing. And they've been doing really well here recently and they're taking over. And I see them, I see you guys, a few other like marketplaces that I've spoken with and had on the show. Do you ever feel, do you, do you ever find yourself looking at, oh, maybe I could try this other marketplace too now that we know this works? Or do you try and as a CEO, do you try and pull yourself away from that and really just double down on what you're doing? Like I'm, I'm interested to to know that perspective also. It's an awesome question, man, because it's important. So you can either go wide or you can go deep. And so there's a lot of horizontal marketplaces like ours that, that go wide and it's, you can get anything, and but you really can't get it. All you get is a list of name and numbers. You still got to call these people and get prices and deal with all the BS of hiring them. Or you can deliver one experience for one thing and make it like the Uber for that. Push a button, get the lawn mode. And so for us, the only reason why we're here is because we have relentlessly, relentlessly focused on this one thing for seven years. And like between, when you hire a grass cutting service and you have a between the point of hiring a grass cutting service and getting a nice manicured mowed lawn, there are like 10,000 things that can go wrong between those two points. You know, equipment broke down. Somebody stole the guy's equipment. He didn't feel like working that day. He got double booked, rained. Somebody else came and mowed it. There's a million things I can go on and on. And like we've spent seven years solving and building the conditions and the redundancy to fix all those things that happen in the real world. We couldn't have done that if we didn't focus on one thing, lawn mowing. And so, and so your question is, okay, I see you're, like, you're the best in the world at lawn mowing, which we are, but I also see this snow plowing thing. What's up with that? We arrived at the decision to add on snow plowing as, like, reluctantly. 
because we are a seasonal business. So our business is like just booms and then for four months it goes to 10% of the peak. And so it was more or less something that we added on to offer during the dead time of our season as a way to keep revenue coming in, to keep driving business to our service providers and the parts of the country that get snow, and also to keep us relevant in the media. So we have a, a local PR earned media strategy in terms of how we distribute the platform. We, my co-founder, that's all he does is PR. And he's been on TV in the last 12 months, something like over 100 times in cities throughout the United States. And so like before COVID hit, he was on the road in, on a plane or in a shitty hotel 300 days out of the year. And so that local earned media strategy is how we, it, it informs our search strategy. It, it informs how we drive, how we attract consumers, move them to the platform on a local level. And so snow removal helps us be in that conversation. And so that was how we arrived at the decision to turn on snow removal. We don't have plans to do maid service, locksmithing, roofing, or even in terms of there's other things you can do on GreenPal in terms of like when you hire somebody to cut their cut your grass, you can hire them for leaf removal, mulch, seeding, trim, shrubs, clean up, all these other things. But that's after you have locked in somebody for the moment. We don't put all of these things on the front door because it, it really messes up what I said earlier. Somebody comes to our property, they need to be able to understand where am I, what can I do here, and why does it matter? Oh, this is the best and easiest way in the world to get my grass cut, done, sold. Not, okay, what is it, tree trimming, gutter cleaning, seeding, what is, this isn't for me, I'm going to go somewhere else. And so we don't want to screw up the magic of we are the world's best solution for ordering a lawn mowing service in the United States. And so we don't take that lightly. It just so happens that it's a nuanced situation where... Our business is seasonal. This is something that complements and fills that gap. And it's something that, that makes us relevant in the media during that period of, of the year. And that's why that's there. And that goes away uh, March 1st, every and year. That ties in. That's a perfect place to wrap up, actually, because that ties in so well with the, of course, there's so many things that you guys work on behind the scenes. But like the overarching topic today has been how really nailing that value prop has helped you drive growth in so many different areas. And I think the way that you've just explained things clearly shows people also that I think a lot of people feel like they have their value prop and they own it. But then when a shiny object comes up, they change what that value prop is. And so this is a really good example of how how sticking to that can can really support longer term growth. Yeah, this has been great. I think everyone listening will will for sure be taking away and, and writing notes, even like I have been doing. I think there's a lot to learn from from you, Brian. And I really appreciate you for spending this time with me today and, and coming on the show. If anyone if anyone needs to, to find you, wants to find out more about Green Power, all of the information will be wherever you're listening or watching to this, you'll find it in the show notes. I think it's pretty pretty easy to find you guys too from, from every like piece of research I've been doing. You're very easy to find Green Power. So yeah, I just want to thank you for your thank you for your time today. This has been really enjoyable for me as well. Hey, Dylan, I appreciate you having me on. I enjoyed it.